The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. That's introduction and prayer is best you could do. So thank you for uh, your kind words and prayer, brother. And it is a joy to be among you guys uh, this evening. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As you turn there, um, I'll just make known very upfront my purpose today, and that is to encourage all of us in our ministry towards one another, in our service towards one another, not only, of course, the world out there, the lost world who don't know Christ, but to each other. And I pray that uh, the verses we have before us here uh, work unto that end. So we're going to cover two verses today in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. Please follow along as I read aloud. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. We pray one more time. Father, glorify your Son in the preaching of your word. We ask that you would help both speaker and listener alike, that the unfolding of your word would give life and light, that it would be a light into our path as we blaze ahead in this trail towards glory, being compelled by the love of Christ to serve you. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen. So in these uh, couple verses here, we have a foundational motivation for why we would do what we do, or really a, a confession from Paul, why he does what he does. Ministry is not easy all the time, uh, both for clay, uh, for clergy or lay people. We understand we are difficult. People are difficult. We're not always waking up on the right side of the bed. Uh, we don't have to be an apostle to understand that there's pain in serving the church. Even though we're all going the same direction, there can be a lot of pain in going that direction together. Paul expresses this quite profoundly later in the book of Corinthians, when after he recounts many trials and troubles, labors, imprisonments, beatings, shipwrecks, stonings, he says, apart from all of these things, horrible things, shipwrecks, snake bites, apart from these other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So he felt the burden of ministry quite well. And he goes on and says, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. And he captures it quite poignantly. His life and heart is for the well-being of somebody else. Who is weak and I'm not weak? I rejoice with you. I weep with you. If you are made to fall, am I not indignant? The question arises from that illustration or from 2 Corinthians 5 is, 
What should keep us from discouragement in our service to one another? What should keep us from despairing in our service to one another? Sometimes uh, we find ourselves in that lifeguard kind of scenario. We go out of our way to help somebody, and as we're trying to help someone who's drowning, we start drowning. And that that's pretty appropriate for the, the, the Christian who wants to help one another get across the Jordan into glory, but themselves face discouragement. And um, I'm probably not the only one here whose most encouraging books to read in ministry are the discouragement of other pastors. It's, it's extremely uh, appropriate and encouraging to know that ministry is hard, and we shouldn't put on a front about that. It's very difficult. So what would what would hold us up from discouragement? What would what would buoy us up from despairing in ministry? Second Corinthians five fourteen and fifteen would say here here's a main reason. There's many things we could say, but here's a main reason, an incredibly profound one. It is the love of Christ. The love of Christ should keep us afloat, should buoy us up in our service to one another. The love of Christ displayed on the cross compels Christians to help one another. And that's my main aim today, that in your interactions with one another, your, your pursuits to encourage, bear one another's burdens, do these one another's, that you would be compelled by the love of Christ. Secondly, or secondarily, I should say, um, it could be that you're not discouraged in ministry, and that's great. Um, but you, you might be hesitant to even enter in a game. And I would say, drink from the the, the well of the love of Christ and be propelled, constrained into ministry for one another. There's, I don't know how to say it, fewer greater things that consider the infinite love of Christ and others wanting to know that as well. So we're going to walk through this passage. It's a very simple passage and it's a little redundant. Paul says, the love of Christ compels us because we've concluded that the love of Christ has been seen by his cross. And his cross empowers people to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's essentially what he's saying. The love of Christ is a, is a powerful love. The love of Christ is a cross love. The love of Christ is such an atoning love it actually guarantees your death to sin and life in Christ. To put it one way, and maybe a little prov provocatively, Christ's atonement secures your, your growth in grace. He buys not only our justification, but our sanctification. So, so firstly, the Christian is compelled to serve by the excellency of Christ's love. By the excellency of Christ's love, I, I haven't recently watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I use excellency because I can find no other better word than 
begging, borrowing, thieving from Jonathan Edwards to say Christ's love is excellent. There's nothing better than it. There's nothing sweeter than it. When we think of the greatness of Christ's love, we are left without dimension. There is no height, no depth, no length, no breadth, which can contain the love of Christ. It is immeasurable. It is higher than Everest, deeper than the Mariana Trench, longer than the Rocky Mountains, and wider than the sky above us. It is inestimable, it is immeasurable, and it is infinite. And that controls us, that, that compels us. It's, it's quite exhaustible, as one of my favorite lines in one of my favorite hymns. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and everyone a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Wonderful words. That the love of Christ is beyond our comprehension. It's past finding out. It is infinite. It is inexhaustible. John Bunyan would call it, it is excelling all loves. It is a love that excels all loves. We could combine all the love of Christians in one surplus, one giant mound, and it would be like a drop into the ocean. It wouldn't, it wouldn't even compare to the immensity of the love of Christ. And more than being a monument to gaze at, the love of Christ is active. It controls us. It constrains us. That is, it, it hems us in and forces us into a particular direction and behavior. Or it compels us. That is, it motivates us, propels us in our own soul towards godliness. Or it, it directs us. That is, a, a guiding, faithful companion, ever true, ever loyal, ever faithful, never leading us astray. No matter which translation you're using, controlling, compelling, constraining us, it is that virtue of Christ which demands the Christian to act on it. It is certainly worshipful. But as Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. We cannot help but acting on the knowledge of the love of Christ for the betterment of our friend or enemy. And so we should ask, what have I concluded about the love of Christ? What have I concluded about the love of Christ? Has considering the love of Christ and the gospel constrained me to serve his people? Is it gripping me? Is it riveting my affections, my will? Is it like Psalm, the author of Psalm 66, 16? Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done from my soul. That's a man who's been gripped by the love of God. What effect does the love of Christ have on us? What effect did it, did it have on us? You don't have to read far, read far into Revelation and understand 
Christ's rebuke to the church at Ephesus was humbling. They lost their first love. They were very good at a lot of things, but they had lost their first love. Are we dry in respect to the love of Christ? Is it not wondrous? Is it not infinite? Is it not mysterious? Is it just some idea of kindness that I think I've had from people before? No, not at all. Not at all. Perhaps the love of Christ will purify our motives in, my, in our service. Am I serving others out of a sense of guilt? Am I serving because I know it's just the right thing to do? Or some other motive? God takes no delight in empty obedience. And beholding the love of Christ purifies our motives to serve for the right reasons. So, firstly, the love of Christ is so excellent that it, it compels us to act. And not just in worship to God, but for the betterment of our friend, our neighbor. Secondly, the Christian is compelled to serve by the sin-breaking power of Christ's love. The Christian is compelled to serve by the sin-breaking power of Christ's love. Look at 5.14. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul links completely in a tight chain link fashion the spiritual death of his people and the physical certainty, the physical death of Christ. As certain as Christ has died physically is as certain as the Christian is dead spiritually. And he actually gets a little controversial here. For whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? This shows that everyone he died for died themselves. Christ didn't die as simply a model of love. He didn't die to hypothetically save people. He died certainly and decisively. And effectively, maybe, we'll just say. He died, therefore all have died. All in him have died. And they, and so Paul does a little thing here. He, he takes the meaning of died for Christ physically, and he uses the same word, died for believers, but not in the same sense. He speaks of it spiritually. He doesn't say Christ has died and therefore all have died. No, Adam brought in death. Christ brings in life. <laughs> he has died for all, therefore all have died. This is what Paul would say in Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So the physical death of Christ meant the spiritual life of the believer. The tyranny of sin over the believer, over the, over the sinner, has been removed. And the Christian has a new master. And that's, that happens by the atonement. And that doesn't happen by mortifying sin by itself. You can't mortify sin apart from Christ. 
with the Spirit. If, if you are in Christ, you have died to sin. You have died to sin. Mysteriously, you did not die to sin when you killed that besetting sin or, or picked up a new spiritual discipline. You didn't die to sin when you actually were converted. You, were, you died to sin 2,000 years ago when Christ died. How does that work? Well, we are in him. We are in Christ. And all that Christ has in his reservoir of love and benefits, the Spirit pours out and applies on us. But the certainty of our death to sin has nothing to do with our life, but everything to do with another's life in my stead. Christ's life and death. So he, he represented us on the cross and thus took away our sin. And, and that little word, where is it? In verse 14, one has died for all. That little word for is so extremely gospel gold. It certainly means he has died as a benefit for all. You know, he died for you. He died as a benefit to help you, to assist you, to, to grace you. But going beyond that, one has died for all means he actually died in your stead. He died in your place. As the hymn says, in my place condemned he stood. He died a death that was my death. He actually lived a life he needed to live, or I needed him to live for me. But he died my death. And he took away my sin because I was in him and my sin was placed on him. And so when he took away my sin and he died, I get the credit. That's the glorious truth of the substitutionary atonement. We don't die in Christ. We live. No ounce of condemnation or God's wrath will the believer experience. Not a single gram, milligram. One has died on behalf of all. And so my previous question, for whom did Christ die? Well, it makes it fairly clear. He died for his people. Because everybody he died for has an immediate benefit from his death. And you might say, well, okay, I get that I've died to sin by the cross of Christ, but I still sin. You're right, you still sin. A lot. I do too. But Christ's death to our death to sin is not an elimination of sin in our life. It's an elimination of the power and the mastery of sin over us. When we lived in sin, in Adam, fallen man, corrupt man, we obey the precepts of our master, sin, tyrannical, diabolical master sin. And when Christ died on the cross, he dethroned that tyrant and became our master so that we no longer listen exclusively to sin. We still do sin, and when we sin, it's because we've listened to sin and the residing flesh, sinful flesh within us. But the power of sin, which was guiding us and directing us, has been completely removed. The strong man has been taken out by a stronger man. And the stronger man, Christ, has taken us captive 
and led us up to heaven with him. So we sit under a new a new master. I think Hebrews 10, 14 captures this quite well. The finality of Christ's atonement and the benefit it brings to the Christian. Hebrews 10 says, Now by a single offering, a one-time offering, he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I, I just think what we need to hear more and more is Christ has not only bought my justification, he has purchased my sanctification. I am sanctified, I am being sanctified, and I will be sanctified slash glorified. That all comes from Christ. So how does this compel us to service? Well, when you counsel one another, encourage one another, you're talking to someone who's been a fellow benefit of the death of Christ. Sin has been defeated. Sin has been defanged. Christ has stripped sin of its power, and that other person is not under its sway anymore. You might think, well, yeah, but they don't listen to my counsel. Yeah, that's life. <laughs> but they are appeal to them on the basis of Christ's cross. Appeal to them that they've been that they have sin defeated. Appeal to them on that basis. And it might be th- through your counsel, through your time with them, through your service to them, you find out, you know what, they're not actually saved. However, we operate off this. This is Paul's, this is Paul's logic. Because, because Christ died, I, I'm going to do ministry. I'm going to expect Christians to go further in their killing sin and their growing in grace because Christ died. If Christ didn't die, I didn't stand a chance. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's logic is simple. Christ has died, broken the power of sin, and ministry is possible. Definite atonement drives his ministry hopes. Christ didn't make future putting off of sin possible. He secured it. You're putting off of sin, putting off the old man, stopping sin, killing that besetting sin. He didn't make that possible. He actually guaranteed that would happen. So we have this hope in ourselves and we give it to the other brother or sister who, who might not be understanding it that way or, or struggling. The battle's been won. The battle's been won. We live, operate, minister from a position of victory. Lastly, the Christian is compelled to serve by the life-giving power of Christ's love. So, Christ's love is excellent and awesome and amazing. It compels us to service. We are also compelled because we know there will be advancements in the defeat of sin progressively in our life. And also, we are compelled to sin because on the other side of that same coin about death being sin be defeated, we have the life given to us. In verse 15, he repeats this phrase, he died for all, so that those who might live, excuse me, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So now Paul's championing the other side of the coin, the, the life 
not only was sin destroyed and dethroned, but we've been, we've been infused with life. Real spiritual life. An alien life. A life we never understood. A life, John, Jesus was saying, John, is an abundant life. So not only we are accounting ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. We share in the newness of life through Jesus' death and resurrection. And even though he may not be saying it in this verse, he says the implication in the next couple verses. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So here's the implication of understanding Christ's atonement on our behalf and the life that is given to us. We don't think in worldly ways anymore. I, know, I don't think, I don't mean actually if that person is a Christian. I'm not going to be skeptical and judge them that way. I don't regard anyone according to the flesh. If someone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And we might, we might judge, well, that new creation doesn't look like it should be. <laughs> but that's, that's faulty on our part. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. That is lovely to hear. The old is gone. Old life is dead. It's gone. Never coming back. Been crucified. I've been crucified to the world, and the world's been crucified to me. And in place of the old, the new has come. The new has come. So what hope can the Christian live with now? By being a new creation, we actually have the power of the one who resurrected the Lord dwelling in you. The Spirit of God, who resurrected Jesus from the dead, dwells in the believer. And that omniscient, omnipotent power, which dwells in you in somewhat of a modest way, meek way, is daily, weekly, monthly, annually, decadely, killing your sin. He's destroying your sin. He's doing it with your cooperation. And sometimes he's doing it with a heavier stick. <laughs> but he's transforming you more and more and more and more into an image of Christ. Perfect in love. Perfect in wisdom. Perfect in grace. Mercy. And so that's, what the, that's the hope we have. That's why we'd be compelled to serve. Because we don't function in the same way as we once did. We don't regard each other according to the flesh. The Christian is given a new mind. You know, the Hebrews saw the heart differently than the Greeks did. And, and we kind of think the way the Greeks did. You know, there's my head and there, or my mind and there's my heart. And I need to get what I believe in my head down to my heart. The Hebrews didn't think like that at all. And I think it's a, it's a more comprehensively 
easier way to understand it. The Hebrews thought, no, my heart is my mind. It is my will, and it is my affections. All that comes comes from my heart. So watch over your heart with all diligence, right? But the, the Christian's mind's been changed, renewed. The Christian's will has changed. Someone comes to Christ, they go back and hang out maybe with their old friends for a little while. Why are you making those decisions? Why are you going to night church? Hey, I don't know. I don't get it. I want it. That's the work of the Spirit. <laughs> and the Christian's affections have changed. You know, Our loves have changed. Our desires have changed. What we hated, we love. What we love, we hate. That's, that's all change. And this happens, yes, by our dutiful obedience, but rooted down in Christ's atonement. He guaranteed, he secured your growth in grace. If this passage is true, it means that our service to one another is just that. It is a service. We are not Christ. You know, sometimes we have this paradox of, you know, um, I don't know how much I need to involve myself in this person's life. We maybe we throw around the terms of, hey, don't be the Holy Spirit of that person. That. Well, we never say. I, I, well, I've never heard anyone say, don't be Christ to that person, uh, in the sense of, don't don't die for their sin, right? But sometimes we think, oh, I don't want to take the place of the Spirit. We are servants, and the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have done it all. They have done it all. It is by Christ's cross we can love someone. Apart from Christ's cross, Titus 3 says, we hate each other and hate in return. That's what we're about. But due to his atonement, we serve one another. He paid for our sins and he enlivens us by his victorious atonement to grow in grace. And I, I, I just can't stress this enough. It's not hypothetical. The Christian will grow in grace. Oh, sure, there's seasons of backsliding, there's seasons of, dis there's seasons of disobedience, there's seasons of, like, what were you thinking? There's all, all types of seasons, but the true believer is in Christ and is successfully moving towards glory. My wife and I were reading um, 2 Corinthians, and we read this passage a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, this is it. This is, this is what I want to teach on. This is so radical. I'm even still telling myself this. I, sometimes you get up here and we're like, you know. Christ's atonement secured your justification and your progressive sanctification and your definitive sanctification. I don't know if you know all those terms or not, kind of geeky, nerdy words, but they're good news. And it secures our glorification. The certainty of Christ's atonement benefits our justification and sanctification. And that's why we would serve one another. Because Christ has done all the heavy lifting. He's done all the work. 
and we just serve out of a out of drinking from the well of the love of Christ, we are compelled to say, I just got to give that out. What Christ has poured into me, I just want to come through me and serve others with. That's why we would serve one another. May the love of Christ control us, compel us to do so. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, your good news is deep. Thank you that Christ has done it all. Thank you that he has paid for our sin. He has given us his very spirit to dwell in us. That when we live, we live for him. May this May this news compel our obedience. May it pierce us to the heart. If we find ourselves disobedient to it, may it, if we find ourselves grieving you, would it grieve us and cause us to repent and turn to you and say, Lord, give me a measure of your spirit again. Thank you for your son, his cross. Thank you for your spirit. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.